0: This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Minns.
1: This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zelensky. G'day Diplomates fans, I'm Misha. This week I caught up with Ukraine's ambassador to Australia, Vasyl Miroshenko. Now, before becoming the ambassador, Vasil was an accomplished and high-profile business and civil society leader in Ukraine. He's a graduate of the London School of Economics He's a communications expert and a recognized global leader. In this episode, we talk about the latest in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, what more the world can do to help, what Ukrainians want for the future for themselves, Russia and Putin's war crimes, what the world got wrong about Putin in the lead up to the invasion, and why what happens in Ukraine matters everywhere. Now, I also want to say a big, big thank you to the ambassador uh, for coming on the show. He's obviously a very busy man. Now He took this call while he was on the road in between meetings and so at times the signal got patchy once or twice so i do apologize for the audio quality may not be to our usual standard but it is such an important conversation so please uh, do listen in and i think you'll learn a lot and and get a lot out of it and a big apology also uh, to the ambassador's son, who had to listen to a rather lengthy conversation. So a big thank you to him for his patience. Now, please continue to support Ukraine however you can. It is so important that we continue to raise awareness of Russia's invasion and give, uh, give support directly however we best we can. Please rate and review the show. It will, um, it will drive it up the charts, and we'll make sure that more people hear uh, what the ambassador has to say. So without further talking from me, please enjoy the episode. Slava lukun All right, Ambassador, welcome to Diplomates. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, hi.
0: I am happy to be with you on for this podcast.
1: Uh, really appreciate uh, you giving up your time now. We're going to cover a lot of terrain, but I thought, you know, given uh, you know, the unfolding um, you know, horrific situation uh, in Ukraine as it stands and obviously the evolving news, I thought it might be useful to give everyone a little bit of an update for those that aren't um, watching things you know, on an hourly basis, as some of us are, yeah, what's the status of the war right now as it stands today in Ukraine? And also, given you've been back home recently, how's morale back home?
0: Look, um, the situation is very tough. Um, uh, Ukrainian forces in the south trying, can't, can't are offensive, trying to recapture uh, Harasson region. Some heavy fighting around Nikolayev and Harasson going on. Um, also heavy hostilities uh, in the east and in, in around Donetsk area and closer to Kharkiv um you see uh ukrainians we we are outnumbered we are uh outgunned for every shell we get russians done shells i understand we're losing some of the ground in the east uh, because of the sheer numbers that russians have in artillery and, and the number of people they can actually um uh, put in there so the situation is not that 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 good we, we lack some artillery pieces we lack Long range missiles, we lack jets and tanks to be able to defend ourselves and to be able to fight the Russians. So the situation is, is, is pretty, pretty difficult, to be frank. And uh, look, in terms of the morale, it depends on who you talk to, because if you talk to my circle of people who are not in the armed forces, but who are kind of like involved and supporting, but not uh, directly fighting. The morale is still high. We feel that we're, you know, this is our existential war. Everybody's mobilized and uh, and keeps on fighting. But look, uh, but when I, I went to Ukraine already twice uh, since I got appointed as an ambassador at, uh, on, on, at the end of March. So I was in Ukraine first time in early June, and second time I came months later with the Prime Minister Albanese. But then during these two trips, I had a chance to talk to my uh, some of my, uh, you know, friends. Who are now in the armed forces, and, you know, you hear different stories. And uh, these are the stories that you don't read in the news about, but they're very horrific, and they're very scary, and, uh, and uh, you know, I have mixed feelings about what I hear. And, but, of course, you know, war is dreadful, and, uh, and a lot of people are mobilized. They have no um, experience of fighting. And the weapons that Russians are using are really sophisticated weapons, like uh, missiles and thermobaric bombs and supersonic bombs uh there is not much that can protect you from this kind of weapons which we don't
1: have yeah I, it's interesting you say that i i i've noticed you know i speak to a lot of people uh in ukraine um that i'm still friends with and uh i also there's a lot of sadness you know because the 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 the, a lot of the death that you've seen now um everyone knows lots of people uh, regrettably that have that have lost their lives either fighting or in um you know in civilian attacks and so you know that there is that depth of sadness there whilst there's still a lot of determination I've certainly you know you've kind of sort of captured it well there right? just on the question of weaponry um and also attention I suppose because you know at the beginning of the war we saw this huge outpouring of concern and you know, like anything now, people got attention spans of about seconds uh, rather than hours and days. But what can the world be doing to help Ukraine um, fight and even up the fight here? Because you, you mentioned this asymmetry in uh, the capabilities that the Russians have. Now we're seeing some long-range artillery finally being given um, to the Ukrainian army in the form of HIMARS, uh, which is the, you know, the ability to fire at a distance. Um, what can the world be doing to help Ukraine resist? And how can we make sure the world continues to pay attention?
0: Look, uh, we need to see more artillery coming into Ukraine. And uh, while well, most of the, um, like, this howitzer guns, the American ones, uh, they, the range is 40 kilometers. Hammers is, is better further away, but we need uh, missiles which fly, uh, which can uh, hit the target at 200 or 300 kilometers. And this is something we don't have yet. Uh, this, this is, we need to hit the target, to hit the Russian stockpiles, to hit the Russian positions in Russia and in Belarus. Because we are continuously attacked from uh, from from uh, from outside, you know, from within Russia and Belarus, and as well as from the from the Black Sea region, uh, from the navy and and the submarines. And so we need this uh, kind of long-range missiles, uh, which would enable us to to destroy the Russian, um, um, you know, uh, stations and 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 places where it's located. That's one thing. Another thing is infantry fighting vehicles or tanks, in other words because uh, we need this to be able to go on counteroffensive and uh, to repel the Russians from Ukraine. And eventually we need the jets to make it all efficient. Uh, and uh, we need some, some, some proper jets, some, some good American jets. And, uh, and it's not yet coming. Uh, we've been using some of the Soviet jets, but uh, I think everybody has run out of them. And, um, and uh, so, so the only way for us to be able to sustain and actually prevail in this war Uh, we need some of those jets coming into the country.
1: Yeah. And so um, in terms of, I suppose one of the things that a lot of people ask me about, and it'd be really great to get your insight into this is in many ways, the origin of this war from Putin is, uh, you know, people will talk about modern sort of issues, but a lot of this is historic in Putin's eyes. And it'll be interesting your take about the history between Ukraine and Russia and Now, why is it important to recognize to your mind that there are, while there may be similarities between the two countries, there are very vast differences between Ukrainians and Russians. Maybe you could explain that.
0: Look, uh, the difference is huge, but uh, first of all, you need to look at Ukraine's history Uh, for the past 300 years. uh, We've suffered from the Russians all this time and uh, during different periods, but probably the most the bloodiest period was in the 20th century and uh, when the and, uh, you know, the, the, the Russian empire collapsed in 1917. Uh, Ukraine proclaimed independence and uh, we enjoyed uh, several republics, which existed for about three and a half, four years uh, in Ukraine. And uh, it was all squashed by the Bolsheviks uh, in 1921. And they came, they destroyed the statehood and uh, proclaimed Ukrainian Socialist Republic, and uh, by 1922, in December, uh, it joined the Soviet Union, and that was actually the establishment of the Soviet Union. And by the way, one of the the reasons that Putin attacked this time, he's all very, um, you know, focused on the dates, and his idea was to actually revive a Soviet Union in one form or another by December of this year, which will be 100 years since the establishment of the Soviet Union. And... um, so, in a way, that was kind of, he's very fixated on, on the dates and, 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 and numbers and symbolism of many different things. So, that was one of the things that he's been pursuing. But, like, why how Russians and, and Ukrainians are different, we're just totally different. Look, uh, we're all Slavonic nations, but if you look at, go deeper, we are part of the European civilization. Ukrainians are. We are freedom uh, we, 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 we We enjoy democracy all the human rights which are out there and they, they, this values European you know values are so important for us well Russia while still being a European nation have ever in its social in terms of their values they're more in Asia rather than they, than they are in Europe like in other words Japan is uh, is part of the Western civilization being still an Asian country whereas Russia, Russia big part of it is still in Europe. But it's part of the asian civilization for which many issues which are important for us like freedom independence you know human rights uh, freedom of press freedom of speech you know things basic stuff which are you know fundamental for any democracy uh, they are not that important in, in in the asian context for many different reasons and we can go deeper and this is this is a key difference and i think this is important to grasp it and it's important to understand it and also We've been under Russia for such a long time. Russians have been destroying Ukraine's identity, destroying our language. And and as a result of it, we now have, you know, a big part of the Ukrainian population has lost Ukrainian language and speak Russian. However, this war, which Russia started eight years ago, has changed the dynamics. More and more people have realized that actually they are Ukrainian. They just use the Russian language uh, as a means to communicate. And... Now, even more recently, during this, you know, uh, in in and when, when Russians mounted this major attack in in February, they've destroyed and hit the most Russian-speaking cities in Ukraine, like Kyiv, Kharkiv, Mariupol, uh, Kherson, Nikolai, These all Russian-speaking cities of Ukraine. So, whatever the pro-Russian sentiment, which even existed there, and there was not much, to be frank, during the past eight years. I mean, it's gone now, and um, and and Putin has now contributed to the birth of a uh, true political nation uh, of Ukraine, uh, which is all-inclusive, uh, which where which, which different ethnic groups are respected, languages are respected, and, and everybody is united and, and never before, you know, all the Orthodox, Catholics, Jews and Muslims, as well as Protestants, all united in fighting together. And, and the same for different ethnic groups which are out there, be they Russian, be they Belarus, or Greeks, or Georgians live in Ukraine uh, everybody's now united uh fighting fighting the russians
1: no it's um it's a really good point you make about language and identity and you know i, I think a lot of people have noted the fact that putin's you know uh basically created everything he is feared uh through you know his, his invasion in terms of ukrainian identity and and being a western leaning democratic nation he's triggered that himself in many ways but also language you know i i always say look you know, Australians we speak English uh but that doesn't mean that we would expect uh you know that any country in the world belongs to any English-speaking nation uh belongs to England I mean you know, perhaps once upon a time it was connected through the British Empire but that was a long time ago and so I think it's a sort of this fallacy uh, that Putin is pushing and it makes absolutely no sense when you start to unpack it um, you wouldn't expect the United States to give itself back to uh, to the united kingdom and there's a million other examples but talking about putin you've raised putin and let's talk about him you know before the war he was claiming that he was being encircled by nato encroachment or somehow that he's being provoked uh, by ukrainian nationalism you know how is it how important is it to debunk this rationalization because there are some people regrettably uh, in western countries that sort of internalize putin's narratives you know how important is it to talk about who is at fault here, and who has invaded whom? Oh, it's extremely
0: important. And um, and uh, different uh, realists, realists in international relations have tried to justify an, um Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine, as you have exactly pointed out, because of the NATO expansion to the east and something which is, goes against the interests of Russia. But let me tell you one thing. The only reason we didn't resisted, or actually was against Ukraine's joining NATO, was that he would never be able to invade Ukraine. So that was his idea, was to always invade Ukraine. And we go back to 2007, the famous speech that he's made at the Munich Security Conference, where he said that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the biggest strategy of, of the 20th century. Right. And his idea was, okay, if Ukraine becomes part of NATO, I won't be able to invade it. Because, look, if to follow his logic, now that Finland and Sweden are joining NATO, according to Putin's logic, he, he now has to invade Finland and uh, and Sweden. As they haven't yet joined NATO, but they're about to join NATO. So if I were Putin and I followed his logic, which is you know, presented to the world, he must be entering Finland now as we speak. Because now the border to NATO is going to be only 30 kilometers from, from St. Petersburg. So according to his logic, he now must invade these two countries to prevent right. NATO from coming closer to his borders.
1: No, no, that's exactly right. I mean, and and, and again, to talk about backfiring, I mean, to, to see Finland and Sweden joining NATO, which was unthinkable, uh, exactly to your point, NATO is a defensive alliance, and if you're a smaller country up against a military superpower, you want strength in numbers. I'm a unionist, I always say, and... We believe in strength in numbers. It is a rational and logical thing to do, and NATO certainly never invaded anybody. Um, I think that's important to remember. Now, speaking of defence, NATO, Europe, yeah, much of the world, a lot of people ask me this, and I'm sure you get it all the time. Everyone, you know, like anything, everyone wants to fast forward to the end. How does this end? When does this war end? But the thing I always say, and perhaps you can give us an insight into this, is what do Ukrainians want out of this? conflict, you know, what are their ambitions for peace? Because I think that's a critical piece here rather than the world's own patience and the world's ability to withstand inverted commas, pain, whether or not it's more expensive petrol or food. How do Ukrainians want this conflict to end? And, and where do you see that, pe- that process at play right now?
0: Look, uh, it's, I think it's clear. Uh, if you look at the casualties in Ukraine and the numbers of number of people who've lost, and, uh, you know, my, my, my entire Facebook is not an obituary. Every day I read about somebody getting killed, uh, who's a friend or a brother or a father or a son of somebody who I know. And, uh, and, and watching this, uh, and this has been our life for the past six months, uh, the whole population is traumatized. So if you ask how Ukrainians want to end this war, they want to see Russia defeated. They want to see Putin defeated. They want to see Russia humiliated. They want to see, actually, Russians will be asking for forgiveness, will have to go through the period that the Nazi Germany had to go through to learn about what they've done in Russia. They will have to be asking for for that for the next 20, 30, 40 years. They must be re-educated. This is how we'd like to see that end. And then Ukraine is rebuilt. We impose heavy uh, reparations on Russia use it money for the rebuild. Uh, and and we be, we joined the European Union, we joined NATO, and we built a stronger and prosperous nation uh, in 20, 30 years from now. Well, this is my scenario. This is how I like to see it.
1: And
0: I'm sure for many Ukrainians, will side with me.
1: No, I th- that's certainly the sentiment that I get uh, when I talk to uh, Ukrainians. I think it's important that we remember that uh, it's not for us to enforce a peace or uh, it's not for NATO to enforce a peace. It's really to support Ukrainians to secure their own freedom and a peace that they can, um, you know, that they're willing to accept and and support. So, uh, you know, just going back just a little bit, you know, you've given us a great sense of history, but I just want to talk a little bit about Putin and everything that happened in the lead up to the invasion, really since 2014, which was when the revolution of dignity happened where Yanukovych uh, was essentially forced out of office because he wanted to you know, forge closer ties with Putin's Russia rather than what the people wanted, which was closer ties with the European Union. Uh, that was an economic partnership at the time. You know, do you think the West and the world has been too soft on Putin? Have we continued to indulge him and say, well, you know, we, we don't want to let Ukraine join NATO or the West or any sort of European Union alliance because it would provoke Putin. We don't want to give weaponry... Uh, to Ukraine because it might provoke Putin. Um, have we got that wrong? Have we handled Putin wrong? Have we misread uh, Putin's ambition?
0: Look, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, you got Putin wrong. Uh, you emboldened Putin, uh, the West. When I say you, I mean the West. Uh, because when Putin invaded uh, Georgia in 2008, uh, the reaction was very, very bleak. Uh, it was very weak. No major sanctions were imposed. And this is what actually emboldened him. And what did he get after invasion of uh, Georgia? He got a reset in the US-Russia policy. That was the response of the United States of America. So he felt like, oh, that's a good indication. If I have invaded Georgia and and, and Barack Obama, when he got elected, he's launched a reset of policy with Russia. That was a good indication for him that the, the West is weak. And Putin believes that democracy is weak. The West is weak. And, and then in 2014, the Russians invade Ukraine. They, they grab Crimea, invade uh, Donetsk and Luhansk. And the sanctions which were imposed on Russia, they are negligent. Well, they've inflicted a bit of damage, but Russia was fine. You know, as the prices for gas and oil are growing, they've been actually beefing up their military in big time. And eight years later, with all this money that they have made by selling uh, natural resources to the Western countries, they attacked Ukraine with another force. And and that was the process of emboldenment of Putin, which has been going on since 2008. And and that's I'm um, you know and I'm happy to see that many Western leaders are now recognizing that they were wrong, especially in Germany, and France, and and, and many and many other nations. You know.
1: No, I think that's exactly right, and unfortunately, yeah, it probably comes from a good intention, uh, wanting to avoid conflict, wanting to avoid provocation of dictators. But unfortunately, bad behaviour leads to worse behaviour, and the evidence of that is uh, right before us right now. Now, you've talked about horrible stories, um, you know, perhaps in a, you know euphemistic sense. Um, you know, there's a lot of discussion now. Of very clear, what are you know under any assessment of international war, war crimes. And uh, only because this one comes to mind, yeah, just the other day, we saw uh, horrific footage of a Ukrainian soldier um, being tortured and castrated uh, on, on, on film um, by what appeared to be Russian soldiers, and that film has been verified. Um, stories like this, they're in abundance. And, you know, I've been approached on a huge number of occasions by people um, telling me rather horrific stories. Yeah, you know, I want to get your take about, you know, what's happening, but also, you know, let's be frank about this. Should there be prosecutions of war crimes, and do you see that likely to happen? Because you talked about uh, a moral reckoning uh, for the Putin regime and perhaps the Russian people that have supported him. Yeah, you know, how do you see that playing um, now and into the future?
0: Yes, the the questions uh, the the war crimes must be prosecuted and. Uh, And uh, the war crimes and the prosecution of them takes time. And uh, now it's important that we document it, we have the evidence, and we have the proof that they have happened. And um, this horrific instance that you referred to, uh, which happened in the Solanymka jail, where the prisoners of war from Azov Steel uh, were tortured on camera, was done with a purpose. And uh, the purpose is very simple to intimidate Ukrainian soldiers is, uh, is a PSYOP, um, and um, and that, that, that was done intentional, and uh, that those people were tortured and then they were blown up, uh, and the reason they were blown up, that they wanted also to hide uh, the evidence of that they were tortured. Uh, but look, um, I think that, that what they're going to achieve by that is actually those people who are fighting, um, they will not be surrendering, they will just fight until they die, because they understand that if they surrender they could also get killed. And, uh, and I think it adds a, a, adds a great deal of uh, animosity and, and and inspiration to the those who are already fighting. Look, I mean, if, if I'm captured by the Russians, they don't respect the International Convention on on, on, on War, the, the Geneva Convention, and if they don't, I better fight until I die. I mean, that's, that's kind of... That's, that's the whole thing. And um, look... This is unfortunately what is happening, but this is more.
1: And so just to, and I want to return to what's happening on the ground in Ukraine, but you're the Ukrainian ambassador to Australia. And so for a lot of people, Ukraine feels a long way away. Now, I think people now in Australia, certainly absolutely right in the world, uh, know a lot more about Ukraine than perhaps they did on February 19 of this year. But, um, you know, why should, to your mind, Australians care about the war in Ukraine? You know, what are the stakes for Australia? And, and do you see linkages between you know, the invasion in Ukraine and, for example, Xi Jinping's ambitions to unify Taiwan? Uh, you know, is this part of a broader struggle for democracy? I mean, how are all these things linked? Look,
0: um, you know, I think Australia has been, has been really good for, for, you know, for Ukraine, supporting Ukraine. Since Russia Russia invaded Ukraine in, in February um Australia was out there immediately condemning it and and sending uh military assistance so far we have 400 million Australian dollars in that military assistance which came in different forms you know was with, with boostmasters with other armored personnel carriers with uh, ammunition with uh, artillery guns uh, and decoys and also some um uh, some of the um, drones and and other items. Uh, it was extremely important uh, for Australia to to demonstrate that they are with Ukraine and 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 sort of the climax of it, it was, of course, the, the visit of, of Prime Minister Anthony Albanese to Kiev, which actually was a historic visit. It has happened for for the first time uh, in other bilateral relations that the Prime Minister of Australia came to Ukraine. And that was a very cordial uh, uh, meeting that he's had with with Zelensky. Zelensky had an opportunity to thank him for the support of the Australian government and the Australian people. Um, I was there for for 12 hours with with your Prime Minister. Uh, He went to Bucha, he went to Irpin, he heard the witness accounts. Uh, He saw with his own eyes uh, the, the level of destruction which was inflicted by the Russian soldiers. Uh, in, in in the outskirts of Kiev uh, he, he he could he could get uh, a really very good account of why Australia should carry on supporting Ukraine and it's not only that Russia has undermined um, security in Europe Russia has undermined global security because uh, Russia has kind of opened up a Pandora box for for different dictators you know, throughout the world who will be involved Who are am watching how it's all going to play out that they may get inspired by what putin has done and and decide to change border by force and that is very applicable here in the in the pacific region because it all boils down to to different other nations and different authoritarian leaders who may want to actually uh, defeat democracy who may want to change borders by force and etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, answering to the second part of the question with respect to taiwan uh, it's it's only similar uh, uh, in in a certain sense but it's still different because you know the thing is that, that Australia as well as uh, most of the other democratic countries they recognize one um, china policy yes. and they don't recognize taiwan as a, as, a, as a as a sovereign nation and nevertheless uh, taiwan is a democracy and uh, and 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 it's so important to have it preserved. Uh, And therefore, um, many countries, uh, Western countries, including Australia, care about what's going to happen to Taiwan. But I don't think that's that's a very good comparison to Ukraine. Ukraine is a totally different story. It's a different level. Uh, Ukraine is a founding member state uh, of the United Nations uh, uh, as a Ukrainian socialist republic. Uh, We've had our mission at the UN since since the UN was established in 1944-1945. Uh, so it's a totally different story and um, uh, we're a country which which gave up nuclear weapons in 1994 unilaterally and we received the uh, guarantees that our border would be sovereign uh would be respected would be would be and would would you know our integrity of our borders was was was, was assured to us by our partners including Russia Uh that apparently uh that was not the plan that Vladimir Putin had. He had a plan of taking over Russia, and you know he tried different ways how to do it. And one of his ways was to actually get Yanukovych sent up to the Customs Union, the Eurasian Customs Union. And this is uh, what was um, really objected by the people of Ukraine, and they went on and and and, and, and uh, on demonstrations. And this is what we know as Revolution of Dignity and this is what 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 happened in 2014 and and putin at the time he he saw the the the, uh, the weakness of, of of ukraine you know the the was the flat we had an, an temporary government in place and he decided to strike and 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 he he was getting ready for that he's it's not like um, that that t- it took him by surprise it was one of the scenarios that, that he looked at and he figured that Ukraine was very weak. it didn't have a uh, central government. And, and then, of course, everybody was very cautious, like, don't provoke Putin, right? And when he wanted to take over, I mean, he took over Crimea. It was everybody in Washington and Brussels and London, like, was warning Ukraine. Oh, don't don't resist, because if you resist, you're going to provoke Putin. And we don't want to provoke him. And you see what happened. You know, it's not only that he's grabbed Crimea by running that bogus referendum. He then annexed the territory. He then invaded in the East. You know, this is because right. this is what happens when you actually appease a
1: dictator. And I just just picking up on a comment, and I, I completely agree with you, obviously. Uh, just picking up on a comment there about this agreement, the Budapest Agreement in 1994, the disarmament um, of Ukraine's uh, uh, nuclear arsenal in exchange for its guarantees around borders and, and everything that's come since there was a, you know the, the a, a color revolution two thousand and four, and we had the revolution dignity in twenty fourteen. But yeah, do you have a sense in you know maybe give us an insight into how Ukrainians feel? But is there a sense that the West has let them down or betrayed them um, in terms of the ability to you know rely on Western support against Russian aggression? Um, you talked about you know don't resist in twenty fourteen. You know when I was in Ukraine. for for that period at the beginning of the war or before the war and during for the first few months, there was very much a sense of will the West help? What would they give us to help? In the end, it was, well, give us the things we need. Tell us, give us the stuff and we'll do it ourselves. But there is a sense of, you know, the West can't really be depended upon as a a partner um, and and that its words are meaningless. Do you have a sense of that? Um, Or perhaps you can give us an insight into that psychology of how Ukrainians feel with the history that you just mentioned.
0: Look, uh, we, we we are very thankful to our allies when I'm sending weapons uh, to Ukraine, like the US, UK, many EU nations, uh, and Australia uh, included. Uh, if, if it was not for that support, uh, I don't think we'd be able to sustain this war and would not be able to withstand the Russian invasion. Um, that wouldn't happen without that support. Of course, when uh, many analysts... Uh, have um, predicted that Ukraine would uh, would fall in three days if if Russians invaded, uh, they were all uh, proved right. wrong, and, and and Ukraine has demonstrated uh, unbelievable resistance and, and resilience um, uh, as a society, as a military, and and everybody. So so I think it's a good lesson uh, to look at, and I think as Ukrainians were demonstrating the courage and and the bravery, uh, that was how decision decision making was changing, and actually the, the, the the, the, the rationale uh, of the Western countries has been changing in terms of providing more weapons because Ukrainians have demonstrated they're ready to fight, they're ready to die for their country. And it's interesting, Commissioner, because this is, this is, I talk to different audiences in, in, in Australia and uh, I talk to young audiences a lot, I've given many lectures at the universities. And I always ask this question, how many people in this room are ready to die for Australia? And it's mm. a good question to ask. Yeah. Because if, if you asked me about 10 years ago, are you ready to die for Ukraine? I would probably find this question inappropriate or awkward or just not politically correct. And I was told that it's not politically correct to ask this question in Australia. But you know what? I think we need to start asking this question because what if somebody decides to invade Australia? And yeah. how many people are ready to fight and die? It's, it's a good question to ask. Uh, because at the end of the day, it's all about irrationality and about, um, you know, about things which can happen and which could be really out of the blue. Because all the analysts looked at Putin from a rational standpoint of view. And from Absolutely. a rational standpoint of view, he shouldn't he should have invaded. But they they, 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 they they misread him. They didn't, because it didn't make sense to invade, but he did. So you see the rationale that we actually apply to, to different players uh, in the region, in the Indo-Pacific included. We look at this rational standpoint of view, but what if it's irrational, just like in this case?
1: No, that's a really good point. That's a point I make to people is that you know, this, there's been this trope that's existed for a very long time and uh, around Putin in particular, but Xi Jinping as well, and the CCP around strategic patience and that People like treat Putin like he's playing 3D chess and the world's playing checkers, whereas really Putin is quite an emotional character and he's a gambler and he's gambled. And all the reasons and examples you've cited throughout our conversation, he's gambled and won every time and he gambled again. And on this occasion, uh, I believe he's lost and all his strategic objectives have been destroyed, at least uh, whatever he was seeking, be it NATO expansion be it his economy be it the military might be Russian prestige have all failed and I hope in the end he completely fails uh, but it is an interesting point about you ask and it's a provocative question I'm glad you are asking it when I talk to people I say you know when they say oh perhaps there's a way that Ukrainians can reach a peace where they give away parts of their country and I say well Ukraine currently has 20 percent of its land mass occupied by illegally occupied by Russia and I said would we, we just give away Queensland uh, would we give away huge swathes of Australia and then people sort of stop and think about that and I think the question you asked is even more provocative than mine it's a it's really well put and I just want to ask you about Russia and Russians um, you know the two countries are very different but their relationships are deep and, and go both ways you sort of gave some uh, a framework of how relationships could be normalized within the countries. But did, did, have you seen examples of personal relationships that have been destroyed or not maintained? You know, I, I've certainly had a lot of people in the Russian diaspora uh, making excuses and those people I've really frankly stopped talking to. Uh, yeah, How are you seeing those personal relationships across the countries or are they just completely and utterly severed now, uh, given the propaganda that exists and the nationalism that exists in Russia?
0: yes uh the relations with the russians are severed uh to be frank uh not a single russian who's in russia and i've met many russians throughout my life and when i studied in sweden when i studied in the u.s or or uk uh not a single russian has written to me actually um the only russians which reached out to me are those russians who live outside of russia those who live in london those who live in the u.s those who live in other places those were the only Russians who kind of reached out, but those who were based in Russia, n- nobody actually, uh, n- nobody did, and um, so that's um, that, and that which which actually tells a lot. And uh, people are brainwashed by, by the propaganda; they're very supportive of this war. Eighty percent of the Russian population support Russian, you know, Putin's um, invasion of Ukraine now we see a trend in russia that many russians believe that putin is weak because he cannot crush ukraine they mm. they urge him to use nuclear weapons to crush ukraine the faster because otherwise he is demonstrating weakness he's not capable of taking over ukraine you see and that and that that, that, that the outcome i mean the reason it's happening is because all these people for 20 years have been actually you know, created by, by, you know, and I'm talking about, you know, there's this group of men in Russia at age group about like 45, 65, and most of their grown-up lives, they've only known Putin for the past 20-something years, right? And Putin Mm -hmm. has created a sense of this big Russian empire, which needs to be rebuilt, and the respect that was, uh, that uh, Soviet Union enjoyed, uh, and, and now we need to get respect back and 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 you know he 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 can explain that look this is the West in the world was wants to destroy our Orthodox civilization, and we are fighting back. So for the Russians they haven't the attacked Ukraine. Right? they're just fighting the Western world because you know NATO wants to destroy Russian civilization. so they are defending themselves in their logic right so and it's and it's really uh, perverted the way it is, but this is what people believe in. And uh, and they are there committing those crimes in Ukraine, raping people, killing people, you know, just because they're Ukrainians. You know, Anthony Albanese was in Bucha and in that little village, which is also, which is a rich village uh, on the outskirts of Kiev, uh, had 462 people executed just because they were Ukrainians. They were civilian people. And I was at a place, and, and Prime Minister was at a place uh, next to the Orthodox Church there, where two hundred of those people were buried in a mosque.
1: Those uh, those war crimes on the uh, you know right across Ukraine, but certainly uh, certainly you know the, the examples we've seen in the uh, outskirts of Kiev are horrendous. Now I wanted just to turn to the displacement of Ukrainians. You know, roughly one in four. Maybe one in three Ukrainians have lost their homes. Many have scattered across Europe or other parts of the world. And you talked about, you know, uh, what a democratic Ukraine would look like. But perhaps, um, you know, how do you see the, you know, the diaspora as it is now? And you know, will you return home? Do you hope everyone can return home? And what's your message for the people that are currently? Uh, displaced around the world right now, what's the message to Ukrainians as they uh, sit and watch their country being destroyed across the world?
0: Look, um, I often, um, since I arrived here in Australia, I, I've, I've traveled uh, throughout the country. And in each city, I would go and see Ukrainian refugees uh, who came here. Of course, the numbers in Australia, we get, there are only 5,000 Ukrainians who arrived here. So these are very small numbers. Because if you look at Poland, Poland is hosting 3.5 million Ukrainians. It's a different right. scale. And, but even the people I meet here, Ukrainians who recently arrived, mostly women with, with kids, well, there are some elderly uh, people as well. But I tell them one thing, look, when I was 15, I went to high school in the U.S. on a high school exchange program. And I spent one year in the U.S. studying um, in, in, in American school. And, um, and that year has changed my life. And then when I get back home and, uh, a year later, whatever I did in my life was shaped by that experience. So my message to them is, well, get your kids into Australian schools. One year or two years later, they will all speak English. And when you go back to Ukraine, and Ukraine will be rebuilding, there'll be more opportunities for your kids in Ukraine rather than in Australia. Or, you know, US, UK, you can pick any other country. And, uh, and, and because... I believe that that as a Ukrainian, you have more opportunities in Ukraine, especially when you're young. Right. Uh, and we are a young country and look at our political leadership uh, look at our members of parliament. Uh, we are a very young nation. Right. I mean, the average age probably of a, of a politician in Ukraine is about 36. Right. Uh, and, and, and 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 the same, you know, the president is, is 44. Uh, so um, just to carry on talking about this. Um, um, uh, yeah. on, on on the message to the refugees. Look, uh, it's, it's, it's horrific to see all those people, uh, you know, living without the country. But we have another 10 million who are internally displaced within Ukraine, who are still staying in Ukraine. And I'm always here in Australia giving one example. So imagine all the people of Sydney and Melbourne moving in two weeks to, any, to all other cities in Australia, but everybody leaves because, you know, 5 million, 5 million, 10 million. What would happen to Adelaide? What would happen to Brisbane? What would happen to first the cities? Which would you probably have to take those people from Sydney and Melbourne in in, in a period of two weeks? That would right. be a disaster for Australia. And Australia is a rich country, a developed country. Ukraine is is, is a, you know the the poorest country of Europe. And now with this war, which which having you know this huge plight of of people who are displaced, the economy has is is paralyzed. Become expert of a grain, become expert of a steel. Uh, we just uh, economy uh, has dropped, you know, significantly. I mean, I don't know how many years we need to get back to, you know, pre pre twenty twenty two. And we have only started kind of recovering from twenty fourteen, right? Uh, when Russians invaded us first time. Uh, so so and felt like okay, now we can do something. It looks good, like last year. Our Agricultural yield was very high. Uh, we had like 100, almost 110 million tons of, of grain that we've, we've harvested. And it was like, wow, that was a record year. And uh, we were all very happy about that because agriculture is a big driver of our economy. And, and look, for five months, we couldn't export anything out of Ukraine until like last week. We only now started you know, sending some ships uh, with grain to Af- Africa and Middle East. But the numbers are very small because... You know, usually we export about five million tons per month of our wheat and, and, and grains, uh, but this time, look at many just only several ships have left, and, and and we're already getting a new harvest of, of wheat this uh, already, but we don't have anywhere to store it because all the grain storage systems are loaded with, with, you know with wheat from the previous year.
1: Right. Yeah, because essentially Putin's been holding. Uh, Ukrainian food supply, but essentially holding the world hostage uh, and, and trying to starve out places like, uh, you know, North Africa, uh, you know, and in, in other parts of the Middle East that rely heavily uh, on food exports from Ukraine. Uh, it's actually interesting. I always point out to people that uh, one of the things that precipitated the Arab Spring, that there were plenty of other reasons, but one of the things that triggered it was a food crisis that came as a result of a bad crop in Ukraine and Russia the year before, and. Um, when food shortages happen, political unrest tends to happen shortly thereafter, particularly in areas that are uh, dictatorships or have weak political structures. So um, I thought you just talked about Ukrainian politics. and I thought it would be an opportunity to talk about perhaps the most famous man in the world now, uh, President Zelensky. Um, you know, so much has been said and written about him, and I know he's your boss, so you can't say too much uh, that wouldn't be off script but I thought yeah, so much has been said about his wartime leadership Uh, so much has been said about uh, his uh, journey from being a comedian to being a comedian who played the president on television to being the president to being a Churchill style leader during war and I also travelled to his hometown to Pityvidig to learn more about him and the steel town that he was from and I learned that he really, he's a tough man from a tough town. It's a great piece, you should read it if you haven't already, listeners. Uh, But I thought Hmm. you could tell us a little bit about um, president Zelensky, as a personal level, you know, what's he like as, as a person, and maybe give us a, a small insight into the man uh, rather than the president.
0: Look, uh, Zelensky has been a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal in in Ukraine's politics. And um, three years ago, when he was elected in landslide victory with uh, getting seventy three percent of vote um, in the second round of, of presidential elections, uh, that was. The result that Ukraine has not seen in the past thirty years. So that was the reason why people voted for for Zelensky. And in the first case, because they wanted change, and the change had to come. And there was a strong demand for change because look, Zelensky won in all parts of Ukraine except for one uh, region. So he won in all twenty, you know, twenty-three other regions, um, uh, except for Crimea, of course, because Crimea is occupied by Russia. that, i mean he would have won in, in crimea as well so he he he, he, was, he was it was an interesting case he appealed to different audiences in different parts uh, of ukraine and everybody thought that he's theirs right for for the east he was theirs for the west he was also theirs. he's uh, you know so there was this connection it was a very smart campaign it was a very intellectual campaign and it, it was the the best that we've seen in Ukraine in the, you know modern history, and uh, and he, he it was not it was an you know an overhaul of the entire system, and and I'm very thankful to, to Zelensky for that because you know Ukraine needed that overhaul, uh, it had to you know it had to be drastic it had to be like this, and and you know it's really uh, inspired many people because. Being somebody who's privy, you've been there, uh, it's a very industrial city. He's a self-made man. Uh, he created uh, a media company. He made a fortune in in, 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 in media business. Um, you know, he ran a big company uh, which was producing lots of uh, entertainment content, which was popular throughout the you kind know, of like all the Russian-speaking world. Um, and and then he became a president uh, as as a grassroots. Uh, uh, Mayhem basically uh, and that was phenomenal so so I think the, the reason you know, he was doing it into with Farid Zakaria I think and uh, Fried Zakaria asked him where is your optimism coming from why, why do you believe you'll win the war remember what he said he said because I believe in my people and this is actually what makes Zelensky different from all other political leaders who've had in Ukraine's history I would not expect this kind of answer from any other president of Ukraine in the past for different reasons, right? But Zelensky giving this answer to Farid Zakaria actually gives you a lot of how Zelensky treats his people, how he really believes in people, about huge human touch, about, you know, being, um, you know, who cares about people. You know, when he did his inaugural speech three years ago, he said, I'm not the president, everybody's the president. It it, it it kind of received mixed uh, coverage when he said it. It wasn't clear what he meant. But now, three years later, you get a totally different uh, understanding of what exactly he, he wanted to say. Right. Because now, at the end of the day, people who are there in the trenches fighting, they, they are fighting, and everybody is fighting. Everybody is united. You know, people collecting money to, to buy some weapons to send to the people in the front lines, you know, elderly people making Molotov cocktails, um, uh, people who have access to telephone, you know, active on social media, uh, people who left Ukraine are mobilizing and collecting, raising money to send back to to those who are in need. So you see, the entire society has changed and everybody is, is geared towards helping the armed forces, helping Ukraine win this war. So, and a lot of that comes from that inspiration that, and the leadership that Zelensky has demonstrated. And, and 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 that's that's really phenomenal. Because you know, when Biden offered him a ride, what well, he said, I don't need the ride, I need I, I need an armor, right? I need weapons. Uh, because if he left Ukraine, I think we could have grumbled. Because if yeah, there is I no agree. political leadership, yeah, I mean, what is there? What's the motivation to fight? Um, so it was so important for him to stay in ukraine to take up the fight and mobilize a nation
1: no i think that's right i always say what would you imagine what world war ii would have been like if churchill left london right i think it was a critical moment yeah. that he stayed now ambassador you're a busy man and i've taken up a lot of your time but i can't let you go and it feels given the seriousness of our conversation and the very real stakes and consequences that are happening right now this question feels very trite it's a silly question and the lamest question of all uh, that everyone knows that i uh, always include at the end of the show but um yeah you are a relatively new resident to australia and we love you and welcome you but the barbecue question is compulsory on diplomats. you're a foreign guest uh, so uh, a barbecue with the ambassador three aussies alive or dead uh, who would they be and, and why with the barbecue at, uh, at, at the ambassador's residence? Uh,
0: thanks, Misha. This is, this is a very good question. And, um, and look, um, so here's, here are my people. So here's my choice, and uh, I'll give you the reasons. First one is, is John, uh, Sir John Monash, an excellent right. World War I general. He, invent, he invented um, new combat tactics that are still used today. And it would be great to hear his views on how Ukraine can win against Russia. And he's on the 100 note, so I wonder what he thinks about that, you know. Another question is is, is another person is, would come from the world of sports. And, you know, immediately on the spot, I was thinking about the captain of your cricket team, Pat Cummings, uh, because a captain of the national cricket team is more important than a prime minister. That's right. Uh, <laughs> But I was, you know, somebody who's really inspired me when I, when I read her story was Ash Barding, the famous tennis player. Uh, she's still very young, but she's so determined, so tough um, as an athlete. And uh, she's already achieved so much while being still very young. And, uh, and, you know, she's an inspiration for me. And when I read her, you know, her story, it's, she's got still a whole life ahead of her. And I'm really curious to see what she's going to be doing uh, in the future. And um, another character uh, is actually, another person, is Dame Adna Average. And uh, this is something <laughs> that I actually, this is, this is what I had to learn, you know, because I'm still new to the country, but I, I'm always very curious, so i asked lots of questions. So once I've kind of started asking those questions, I started Googling, and, and, and I found Dame Adna very funny. I think she's such a sharp observer of human interactions and world events, and she can boil down the biggest problem to a very clever, simple description. Uh, I'd love to hear what she has to say about Putin and the oligarchs who support him, for instance, right? And how would she see the world now? And and I think that this would be a fantastic barbecue with, with three people, I would say, or four people. Uh, and uh, I'd love to have you there as well.
1: <laughs> well, if you could get those four people there, I- I'm more than happy to come along uh... It sounds like a, a fantastic group. And I would definitely love to hear Dame Edna Everidge take down Putin. Uh, that would be, I think, something to behold. And also, just on Monash, it's interesting that he was actually the first uh, non United States general to command United States forces and the only since. So, Monash is actually held in very high esteem uh, by the United States forces and around the world. So, a fabulous uh, set of choices there. And you're, you're very quick, you, you've caught on to Aussie culture very well in that you've identified pat cummins as the guy to know uh, rather than anthony albanese and so i think you're going to do very well um in australia mate but look ambassador thank you so much for the time you've given us yeah, today thanks, uh, it, it's an absolute pleasure to speak to you the ukrainian people continue to be an inspiration to the world and uh, we wish you all the best and we wish ukrainians all the best so slav ukrainian
0: yeah, thanks a lot and uh, have a good day and uh, I look forward to meeting you personally when you when finally you return to
1: Australia. Thank you so much, mate. We'll catch up soon. All right. Thanks a lot. G'day, Diplomates fans. A big, big thank you once again to the Ambassador for coming on the show. Uh, hugely important conversation and I hope you got a lot out of it. If you did enjoy the episode, please share it around. If you haven't already, rate and review Uh, the show really does help a lot. And the more people we get listening and talking about what's happening in Ukraine, the better. And as we know, it's still happening. Uh, Not as many of us are paying attention now, but we need to make sure we continue to raise the status um, and awareness of this conflict. So uh, as ever, I'm going to answer a question now. I'm sorry I'm a bit behind. Uh, I know I've been very slack in uh, recording episodes. I've had a lot of other projects underway, uh, which will be, Um, coming out shortly but at the same time i've got to do better so i'm sorry uh and a lot of you've been asking we've got some great um interviews planned for the rest of the year so do keep an eye out for them and uh i do love how much you all seem to appreciate and enjoy the podcast so i want to keep i want to keep you all engaged with the show so thank you so much now the question here is from eddie now eddie asks should nancy pelosi have gone to taiwan Well, we just heard a little bit about Taiwan from the ambassador, but I think um, I'm going to give a slightly, not wishy-washy answer, but a lengthy answer, unsurprisingly, uh, when I'm able to talk without anyone interrupting me. um, Yes and no. And what do I mean by that? Well, overall, starting off, I think it's very important that, you know, places like Taiwan democracies or countries like Ukraine, uh, that we continue to raise their status in the global conversation and that as they're being menaced uh, by major... Uh, autocratic nations and major autocratic neighbors uh, that we uh, don't leave them on their own and Taiwan's a good example of perhaps a lesser understood situation more people probably aware of it now but certainly before February I don't think a lot of people knew much about Ukraine so we need to be talking about it before it's regrettably too late Um, now question of timing Now, Nancy Pelosi has got a very, very long history of being um, anti-authoritarianism and anti-Chinese Communist Party. So uh, I think her reasons for going are genuine. Um, So some people say, oh, it's cynical. She's worried about she's no longer going to be Speaker um, uh, after the midterms in the United States and so she's going to retire and maybe this is just her signing off as a big bang moment. I don't really buy that. I think her want to go is genuine. But I think it is not ideal when you have, you know, Biden essentially, as the US president, is really responsible for foreign policy and having a bit of a incoherent foreign policy um, is not ideal. And so Biden, I don't think, wanted her to go. And also, um, the timing is the big question mark. So obviously, uh, you know, we've got all this situation playing out in Ukraine, but you've also got Xi Jinping and he's got his own politics. Now, you know, China under Xi Jinping, the CCP is not democratic, but that doesn't mean they don't have politics. And so he's up for, in inverted commas, election in October this year. And, you know, making you know, the Chinese are very focused on face, uh, you know, sort of respect question. And so the idea that um, that uh, essentially the third person, third most senior person in the US government uh, would visit um, Taiwan in the lead up to this thing, and there's a risk there that um, Xi Jinping could look weak. Now, they didn't stop it from happening. And frankly, once uh, the CCP said um, Pelosi couldn't go, she had to go, right? There was just simply no option. She had to go on that trip once they said she couldn't. But, but, um, I think, you know, it, it could have been handled at a different time and certainly not into the lead up um, to Xi Jinping's uh, re-election campaign. And now you're seeing a lot of these war games after the fact, missiles being fired over the top of Taipei and all sorts of things. And, you know, that's probably the blowback here. And so, in foreign policy, the big question you've got to ask yourself is is what we get worth what we do? Um, on this occasion, notwithstanding all the benefits that I've said about raising the status of Taiwan, on this occasion, you've got to query whether or not it was needed. Uh, not whether or not it was worthy, but whether or not it was needed, whether or not it was needed right now. And so. That's a long answer, Eddie, that I would say um, I've got no issue with Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan. I've got no issue with, frankly, any senior pl- politician or leader around the world going to Taiwan. I think we should do more with Taiwan. I've said that in the past. But right now um, and uh, in this moment, I think perhaps it has served to raise tensions when we don't really want to raise tension. And frankly, um, what we need most of all is Xi Jinping to really kind of seek to break this, inverted commas, no limits partnership with Vladimir Putin and really put the pressure on him and the weights on him to stop his invasion and brutalizing of Ukrainian people and that's where I think the focus should be and I think that would be a better outcome. So, there is a rather lengthy answer but um, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Really thank you everyone for tuning in, sharing the show and continuing to support it because um, you know I get a lot out of it I'm glad you do too. And it's very important that the conversations we have uh, on Diplomates are shared widely. So thank you so much, and we'll catch up next time. See you soon. You are just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels.
0: This podcast was brought to you by Minimum Productions, producer Jim Mintz.